Welcome to the History of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 13, The Brewer of Ghent. Hello and welcome to another episode of History of the Netherlands. We are sure that many of you listening out there have been wondering over the last month or so, when is this guy going to start talking about Belgium again? Well, rest easy, folks, because today we are going to talk about Belgium again. We last left our Flemish cousins after they had incomprehensibly defeated the cream of the French nobility at the Battle of the Golden Spurs, an event deemed so improbable that even the Pope was woken up so his mind too could be blown by the news. If you can recall episode 10 when we covered this, Flanders, which relied on English wool to make the cloth which was so important to its economy, had been put under direct rule by the French crown after the Count, Guy of Dampierre, had sought to throw off the French and seek alliance with the English. When a French army marched into Bruges, a weaver and a butcher had led an uprising and murdered all of the Francophiles in the city, leading to the battle in front of the walls of Courtrike that resulted in a bunch of dead French nobles lying in the bloody bogland of Flanders. Although they had suffered catastrophic losses during the battle, the French were not finished. Still, more battles were waged, trying to decide the balance of power between the Flemish counts, the urban patriciates in various cities, the workers, especially those in the cloth industry, and then, of course, the French king and the English king. Guy of Dampierre, the Count of Flanders, had been imprisoned by the French king by the time the Battle of the Golden Spurs was waged in 1302. He died in prison, and so his son, Robert of Bethune, became the new Count of Flanders. In June 1305, he and the French king agreed to the Treaty of Atis-sur-Orge, which, from a Flemish point of view, was positively Versailles-esque in how it made them responsible for the conflict, despite the fact that they hadn't really lost it militarily. The terms of the treaty stated that the Flemish had to pay reparations to the French crown, £400,000 worth, as well as an annual indemnity of £20,000. In return, Flanders was returned to its previous state of semi-autonomy. All prisoners were freed, and a general amnesty was agreed to. However, to ensure that Flanders and its rebellious counts and workers stuck to the deal, France took temporary control of Lille, Douai, and Orchy. For the people of Flanders, who had stuck by their count and stood firm in the Battle of the Golden Spurs, this was not a popular treaty. The fine, in particular, was much hated because there was no doubt that the money would be coming from the ordinary citizens, and in future, many of the cities would simply refuse to pay their share. So trouble just continued to stir. In 1312, therefore, further negotiations were concluded by which Robert, the Count of Flanders, was engineering a more amicable relationship with the French king, or, to be more frank, and excuse the pun, 
to get out of having to pay the immense fine that had been levied in 1305. The upshot of these negotiations was the Treaty of Pontois, which had a couple of ramifications. Firstly, it gave France permanent control of the cities of Lille, Orchy, and Douai, which was a move hated by the other big cloth-making Flemish cities. Secondly, after this treaty, Robert, the Count of Flanders, was entitled to collect half of the fine that was owed to the French king annually by Flanders. This is called the Transport of Flanders, and is not to be confused with the public transport system in Flanders today, which is probably as disliked by the Flemish population as the actual transport of Flanders was back then. The idea of giving Robert this due was to encourage him to actually collect the fine. So now, Flanders has gotten smaller and lost those cities, Lille, Douai, and Orchie. From this point on, we can say goodbye to them as lowlander towns, as they would remain French to this day. Farewell, adieu, auf Wiedersehen, goodbye. Dewey. The towns continued to grow in strength, but the big five cities essentially now became the big three, now that Douai and Lille were in French hands. So the ones that matter from here on out are Bruges, Ypres, and the most populous of all Flemish cities, Ghent. If you recall in our episode on the Battle of the Golden Spurs, people who were supporters of the French king, lovers of French culture, and Francophiles themselves were known as Leliards, while those who were more inclined towards loyalty to the Count of Flanders and the Flemish language were known as Libards, or as they would soon begin calling themselves Clauvards. Well, after the Treaty of Artis-sur-Orge, many Leliards made their way back into the towns from which they had been exiled. William Tabrak, in his book A Plague of Insurrection, says, quote, Leliart nobles and patricians returned in force, arrogantly demanding subsidies for every penny they had lost during the war. End quote. Before the Battle of the Golden Spurs, the cities had been run by the urban patriciate, whose interest was keeping themselves in power, but who now had to deal with the growing power of the guilds, as well as infernal encroachments onto their influence by nouveau riche trying to break into their ranks. Of the guilds, there were many different kinds, but in general, the two largest were the fullers, those who stepped on cloth in buckets of urine, and the people who largely employed them, the weavers. Although these were both craft guilds, they were also often at war with each other over working rights and pay. Then there were also land-owning burghers, those urban elite who were called porters. The status of members of these different groups varied according to the different cities. In Bruges, porters had the largest sphere of influence. In a magistracy of 28 seats, they filled nine of them. However, the population there was divided, largely along guild and trade lines, into nine sections, and the remaining 19 seats saw varying degrees of representation of each section. Ypres' magistracy was a power-sharing structure between the guilds and the porters, which relied on the fullers and the weavers getting along. In Ghent, 
how the Fullers and the Weavers got along, or didn't, often had direct ramifications on the ebb and flow of power within that town's administration. There, there were 5,100 members of the Weavers' Guild and 3,400 from that of the Fullers. Weavers did tend to dominate more often in Ghent due to their larger numbers and their elevated role within the production of cloth, and the city's governance was split between them, the other smaller guilds, and the porters, who even though they only had two seats on the magistracy, received higher value representation. You can imagine the immense feeling of anger that ordinary people living in one of these towns must have felt about the circumstances that they began to find themselves in coming out of such a protracted period of warfare. They detested that they had to pay the fine levied on Flanders following the negotiations between the Flemish count and the French king, but at the same time, war had badly disrupted the trade upon which they relied, and so the end of hostilities at least meant that the Flemish people could try to get back to the one thing most of them could agree was good, making money. The cloth workers in the towns needed to work so they could feed themselves and their families, and the merchants wanted the international trade which had been scared away by the fighting to return. When, in 1319, Count Robert made a move to try and get Lille back from the French by marching into it, the workers' militia of Ghent refused to join him, and there was little he could do about it. Simply put, in the cities, the Fullers, Weavers, and other craft guilds had acquired too much power and were now officially part of the decision-making process within town councils. This was one of the biggest impacts of the warfare that had now ravaged Flanders for the previous four decades. Commoners there now had power, and they had got there by joining forces. For farmers and workers in the countryside, an example had been set to show them that they need not merely be humble peasants, obedient to their feudal lord. In the countryside too, these commoners began to form their own organized groups and to mobilize and fight for their own interests. With city guilds being given rights to the countryside around their towns, this greatly irked these groups of countryside peasants, and so here was another point where conflict and violence would erupt. In 1320, Robert of Bethune went to Paris to try and patch things up with the French king for good. He did the whole, here, why don't you marry your daughter to my grandson thing, and agreed to name said grandson Louis as his heir in Flanders. This meant that when Robert shook off his mortal coil in 1322, Louis, who was also the count of the French counties. Neva and Rettel, by virtue of his parents, became the new Flemish count. Louis of Nevers was still fairly young when he inherited Flanders, and the transition of power from an old count to a new count often gave the other bodies of power in Flanders a chance to try and strengthen their own positions. The main centres of political power were in the towns, all those Leliards, Libards, the patricians, workers' guilds, landowners, etc., Essentially, Flanders was taken over by the people ruling the three cities, Ypres, Bruges, and Ghent. Varyingly, they began to dominate the areas outside of their walls and created legislation to protect their textile industries at the expense of the surrounding countryside. 
As stated by Blom and Lamberts in History of the Low Countries, quote, If their laws were not obeyed, they sent militias to destroy the looms and fuller tubs of their opponents. End quote. Imagine a bunch of angry citizens storming out of a town armed with pikes and hoodendachs, kicking over and smashing tubs of urine, which you, an uppity fuller peasant, had been busy collecting in order to fool your own cloth outside of the guild. That's actually taking the piss, if you ask me. But the towns were becoming fat off the profits and wanted to protect themselves. Around 1325, the annual ordinary revenue of Ghent surpassed that of the Count of Flanders. So, in terms of Ghent, as someone on Reddit might phrase it today, it was rich AF. The violence of the previous 20 to 40 years, from the point of view of most in Flanders, had been about protecting the textile industry and the relative autonomy that stemmed from the wealth it created. And the Counts of Flanders had normally been on the same side as the Flemish people against the French monarch. But the new Count, Louis of Nevers, was a French lover. As opposed to his great-grandfather, Guy of Dampierre, and his grandfather, Robert of Bethune, Louis had been raised at the French court. He was even married to a French princess. He was essentially a stranger in Flanders, had no experience, was very young, and had been thrust into a position which even the most hardened and savvy of politicians would have had trouble dealing with. Louis, when offered a chance at first glance, did not take a fully pro-France stance in this political dance of war and arranged romance. He actually gave up his Dampier line's claim against those infernal events for the county of Zeeland. That ended a family feud over the territory that had been raging since the 1240s. He also began to issue greater liberties to Ypres and Bruges, allowing their monopolies on the cloth trade in their local areas. Louis then learned Flemish Count Lesson Number 1. You are a vassal of the French king. The French king was not happy with having these arrangements agreed upon without his consent. He ordered Louis to Paris, where he imprisoned him briefly at the end of 1322. To be fair, this earned Louis a star for doing something very typical of Flemish counts, being put in prison by the French king. But he got out by issuing the gravest of apologies, adulations, and homage to his liege lord. From now on, the reputation of Louis in Flanders would be as a French pawn. And rather have the reputation of a French prawn, if you ask me, on crevette, cooked in butter and garlic, and served with a glass of picpole de Pinay. Oh, lecker. So having experienced firsthand this bit of feudal relationship abuse, Louis came back to Flanders with his tail between his legs, attempting to lick his wounds, and to make himself feel good again, he decided to give out the feudal rights of the town of Slaus to his uncle, John of Namur, in July 1323. Slaus was where ships and their goods entered and exited Bruges. The people of Bruges were therefore enraged at this encroachment on their autonomy, and so in retaliation, on August 1st, they entered Slaus, burnt it to the ground, and took John of Namur hostage. 
This was an insult to their count. They may as well have slapped Louis in the face with a croissant. In fact, that might have been slightly less humiliating because at least he'd get a free breakfast. But there was simply nothing that Louis could do but sit and take it. Louis went about trying to enforce the collection of the transport of Flanders, those taxes that had been stipulated by the Treaty of Pontois. He was now very broadly offside, not only with the people living in the cities, but also with those in the countryside, who didn't have the benefit of large walls behind which they could stand and thumb their noses at the Count's tax collectors. Around October 1323, a peasant farmers' uprising erupted in Flanders in protest of the planned taxes. The Count was in France at the time, likely choosing which foie gras he was going to smear on his baguette. He had to rush back to Flanders when the farmers, who were led by a rich peasant farmer called Nicolas Zonneken, organized and went rampaging through the county. They took Newport, Ferner, and Ypres. For the next five years, led by Zonneken, they dominated Flemish internal affairs, often enforcing their rule by violence in towns and cities. It was such a big deal that the Pope was even called upon by the French king and Julie excommunicated all of the rebels, which was a terrifying thing for every Christian who lived in Western Europe at this time. That the rebels continued and went against the ecclesiastical influences around them showed how determined they were. The tensions flared on and off as the two sides negotiated with each other, but in one of the outbursts of violence, Count Louis himself was captured by the Bruges militia at Courtreich, then held hostage in Bruges for about half a year, before he was eventually released at the beginning of December 1325. Whereas Bruges and its surrounding countryside was the epicenter of this uprising, Ghent was the centre of the reaction against it. Many of the burghers and nobles who fled from the wrath of the rebels ended up in Ghent, and the patricians there managed to keep the town out of the fray up until 1325, when the weavers in Ghent also rose up. This flare-up, however, was quelled, and 600 of the instigators were fined heavily for their role in it, and then exiled from Ghent for life. The duty of collecting these payments was given to a rich broker called Jakob van Artefelder. Remember his name, Jakob van Artefelder, as history will not forget it. After another lull in hostilities, the rebellion flared up again in 1328. A new king was on the throne of France, Philip VI, and his French military intervention saw the rebellion crushed, and Louis, the Count, was reinstated. It was rivers of blood on the street kind of stuff. Property was confiscated, especially from the porters of Bruges, who had also defied the Count. Bruges and Ypres both had their walls knocked down as punishment, and their moats filled in, along with many other towns that had their privileges taken away from them. Ghent, having denied the rebels, came out of it in a much stronger position than the other cities. Of the big three, Ghent was the biggest.
But although the Peasants' Rebellion was defeated, its causes did not disappear. The power structures in Flemish cities and the countryside continued, as the rulers and interested parties throughout strived to protect their particular agendas. One of the consequences of the revolt was that the richer farmers in regional areas had managed to form a conservative body politic that could now serve to counter the incursions into regional areas by the power bases in the towns and cities. By the end of the 14th century, the so-called Franc of Bruges, which was the agricultural area outside of Bruges, would join the three big cities and become part of the so-called Four Members of Flanders. The coronation of this new French king, Philip VI, had actually been extremely controversial because the former king, his predecessor Charles IV, had died without a male heir, thus ending the Capetian dynasty, which had ruled since the end of the Carolingian dynasty some 350 years earlier. As we have seen multiple times throughout this series already, such power vacuums are perfect opportunities for royal families to go around stabbing each other in the back. Charles's widow had been pregnant at the time of his death, so nobody knew that there was going to be no male heir yet. They were all just sitting around wondering whether or not this child would be a boy or not. Now, according to Salic law, which went all the way back to the time of the Salian Franks, those early lowlander Franks who ended up taking over the whole joint, titles could only be passed from father to son. Philip, the Count of Valois, being the grandson of Philip III, was thus chosen by lawyers in Paris to be the regent of France in the interim. The King of England, however, Edward III, argued that since he was actually the closest male relative to the former French king, his mother being Charles IV's sister, he had a stronger claim to the crown. But Philip's supporters argued that the sister, Edward's mother, couldn't pass on a title which she herself had never had, being that she was a woman and could never have inherited it in the first place. When Charles's widow gave birth also to a daughter, Philip VI officially became the new King of France and kicked off the Valois dynasty, and the seeds of the Hundred Years' War between England and France were sown, with Edward and Philip juking it out for control of France. These were uncertain, perilous, and soon to be very bad times. And speaking of bad times, which nobody wishes they had to live through, you're about to get an example of that in the form of an ad break. Thankfully, this one will not last for a hundred years. See you on the other side. Welcome back. We're glad you survived. We don't want to get too wrapped up in the complicated events going on between France and England at this point of time, but suffice it to say that Flanders stuck right between the great powers, was going to be used by both sides in their attempts to hurt each other and to find allies for the upcoming war. Many power bases within the county preferred continuing good relations with England and uninhibited access to their wool and markets. 
When the English embargoed the export of wool and food to Flanders in 1336, the Flemish cities were rocked to their core. Faced with high unemployment and food shortages, the towns were full of hungry, angry, desperate people who were looking for somebody, anybody, to lead them out of this mess. At a meeting on the 28th of December 1337, a general assembly of the citizens of Ghent was held at an abbey in one of the suburbs of the town. What exactly was said is lost to history, but we can imagine a mob of cold and pissed off people, furious that their counts love in with all things French, had led to them losing their jobs. They'd be standing around listening as various people would rise up in front of them and lay out their vision of what should happen instead. One person who spoke at this meeting was a man whose name we told you to remember earlier, Jakob van Artefelde, and about a week later, he and four other men were elected as captains of Ghent. This was not an official position, but more an example of a group of revolutionary leaders who stood totally apart from the established official councils of aldermen being given reign over the city. Within a short space of time, Jakob van Artefelde was the chief captain of Ghent, and soon he would be in total control of all of Flanders. Not a lot is known about the early life of Jakob van Artefelde, and his life has been wrapped up in myth and legend by nationalistic and romantic historians writing about him in much later centuries, trying to use him as a prototype of a Flemish nationalist man of the people. He was born in Ghent, and he made his fortune as a broker. The nicknames that would survive him include the Wise Man, as well as the Brewer of Ghent. It being totally uncertain, by the way, whether he also was a brewer or had ever brewed anything other than turning the ingredients of war, social unrest, and radical revolution into a whole new political state. One of the stories is that he enrolled himself in the Brewer's Guild of Ghent just to make himself more popular amongst the regular people. It's populism. Whatever the case Upon his appointment, he and the rest of the captains went about trying to repair the damage that both the region and its economy had incurred. They did this with a heavier hand the further they reached away from the three big towns. There was unrest and food shortages in these towns and a general malaise from all the war and uncertainty. Van Artefelder's interest was in the wealth of the urbanized wool industry and so he sought to kick the town's back into gear. Within two days, the price of grain in Ghent had been fixed and hoarding was made illegal. He ran a metaphoric broom through various levels of city administration in Ghent, firing, exiling or promoting people in different positions as he saw fit. In May of 1338, accompanied by men of the towns, captains of the militias and guild representatives, he marched upon various manorial lords and forced them to swear obedience to him. He then appointed various captains to rule other towns and regional areas with an iron fist. This was not the first time that military rule had developed under the leadership of town captains. However, what was remarkable about this time was that out of the five of them, 
with Van Artefelde becoming the first amongst equals, at least three and possibly four are all believed to have been craft guild members, mostly weavers and probably one fuller. These men were the inner circle that formed around Van Artefelde and they were mostly of the working class. On the international front, Van Artefelde tried to keep Flanders from submitting to the pressures being placed on it by both England and France, and instead sought out a federation of alliances between towns in Flanders, Hanno, Brabant, and Holland, with the aim of neutrality in this conflict between the two great powers. His measures were designed to allow the wool industry to flourish once more, and in this, he was largely successful. One of the measures was to attain a strong commercial treaty with England. This obviously went against the packs of neutrality that he had manufactured, but in reality, he was a man who had made his wealth through wool, and so was very much pro-English to start with. He essentially created a dictatorial state, gaining prominence through wealth and clearly having a sharp administrative mind, he also used absolute fear to control the people of Flanders. Jean Froissart, who was writing around the mid to late 1300s and who would have spoken to people who bore witness to the reign of Van Artefelde, described his manner of rule thus, quote, There was none that durst disobey his commandment, he had always going with him up and down in Ghent sixty or fourscore varlets armed, and among them were three or four that knew the secretness of his mind, so that if he met a person that he hated or had him in suspicion, incontinent he was slain. For he had commanded his secret varlets that whensoever he met any person and made such a sign to them, that incontinent they should slay him, whatsoever he were, without any words or reasoning. And by that means he made many to be slain, whereby he was so doubted that none dare speak against anything that he would have done, so that every man was glad to make him good cheer. End quote. So here you have what can be argued to be a proto-modern totalitarian state of which Van Artefelde manoeuvred its policies according to his and its interests, which he saw as the same. He paid his bodyguards and supporters handsomely and on time, and by doing so was able to gain such a strong position throughout all of Flanders. He also ejected anybody who he thought was loyal to Count Louis, taking an interesting approach by taking their land from them, keeping half of it for himself, but leaving the other half to their wives and children. He collected the revenues which were owed to the count and used them to his own ends, not keeping accurate accounts of where the money was coming from or to where it was going. If he wanted money, he just demanded it. And would you say no to a guy with an army of people willing to kill you at a secret hand signal? In February 1339, Louis was forced to flee Flanders, and in his stead, his brother-in-law, a man named Simon de Mirabello, who was a Lombard banker and also a friend of Jacob van Artefelde, became the regent. Artefelde was now, in practice, the sole authority in Flanders. This is also the last time that we will see 
Count Louis of Nevers, who would end up dying in a very Francophilic way, fighting for the French king against the English at the Battle of Crecy in 1346. As we mentioned earlier, Artefelder's main priority was restarting the trade with England. He fostered great relations with the English king, Edward III, who sailed with his navy to dock at Slaus near Bruges. From there, he could conduct his war against the French. Froissart tells us how there were many meetings between Artefelder and the king and the various representatives of the cities. Through giving him loans, Artefelder was able to negotiate an end to the embargo on the export of wool from England to Flanders, as well as Edward's vow to take back the towns Flanders had lost to France over the previous century. Edward's main priority was to find allies to fight the French. Van Artefelder wanted to make Flanders just that, but he knew about the Flemish people. He knew that despite ruling them through this revolutionary regime, the Flemish still valued the oaths that they had sworn to the French crown, and they knew that they would suffer retributions from the church as well as shame and dishonor if they were to turn against their suzerain. But if Edward was to be crowned as King of France, this would release the cities from any obligations that they had to Philip. And so, on the 26th of January, 1340, Edward III entered Ghent, and in great pomp and circumstance, on a square called the Friday Market Square, representatives of the three cities of Flanders recognized Edward as their lord and as the true king of France. They then all presumably had a big party and feasted and drank a bunch of booze. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brings us to everybody's favorite segment. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. That's right, the word booze comes from the middle Dutch word boosen which means to drink excessively. Having a verb for drinking in excess reflects how ingrained it is in Dutch culture. In fact, being on the Friday Market Square, perhaps this was the first example of what the Dutch call Freimibo. A Freidag, Friday, Middag, Midday, Borrel, Drink. That's right, Friday Midday Drinking and Booze. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Let's just take a second now to think about how weird this whole thing is. Within the space of almost exactly two years, this Jakob van Artefelder has gone from being a commoner, albeit a rich one, probably known only within Ghent, to someone in a position to negotiate on equal terms with the King of England and then to arrange having him recognized as the King of France. This is a ridiculous rise to power in an extremely short amount of time, and shows that now noble bloodlines weren't actually necessary to rise to power as long as you had the charisma, the money, and the ruthlessness to get yourself there. And he was ruthless. He himself didn't just rely on his soldiers, he actually once slaughtered a knight in front of his new mate, the King of England. That's right, Machiavelli would have been proud 
of Jakob van Altefelder's methods, were he not still more than a century from being born. So having formalised this alliance now with the English, the next thing to do was to go and have a fight with the French. In June 1340, the English and French fleet met each other near the town of Slaus. The fighting was intense, it involved ships lashing to each other, and the sailors engaging in hand-to-hand combat. It could have gone either way, but after some toing and froing, eventually, some Flemish ships left their nearby ports and attacked the French from behind, leading to a clear victory for the English. It is estimated that up to 20,000 French soldiers died during the battle, and it resulted in the English gaining full control of the channel. After the Battle of Slaus, the English then put the town of Tournai, near Lille, to siege. This was less successful, however, and ended in a stalemate after the political situation in England now demanded that Edward return. The truce of what I assume the French call Esplechon, but in Australia we would call Esplechon, was signed, which forbade England from attacking France for the next five years, and this allowed King Eddie and his English army to Brexit off the continent for a while. This left the Flemish, unusually for lowlander people, caught a bit high and dry. Get it? They had revolted against the French, under the seeming protection of the English, but were now left alone to face the consequences of it all. The Flemish people, no matter whether they had supported this alliance or not, knew that they would surely pay for it. And so, what had been the meteoric rise of Jakob van Artefelder now began its inevitable, blazing crash back to Earth. Between 1340 and 42, Flanders admittedly avoided military engagement with any foreign power, which was a pretty long time by the standards with which it was accustomed. But already, questions had begun to be asked about the direction that van Artefelder had taken the county in and about all the money that he had been collecting over the years of his rule, including money that was due for the count against whom he was rebelling. And there remained much discontent at the lack of loyalty shown to the count himself. In 1343, a rebellion that was led by the Dean of Weavers in Ghent almost managed to topple the Van Artefelder regime, but at the last minute, he was rescued by an army of his supporters from Bruges. Despite the totalitarian control of Flanders that van Artefelder had manufactured, and despite it sustaining him for a little bit longer yet, eventually, the time arrived for him to take that sudden and swift solo slide off the platform of power that he had built himself. He had many problems. Domestically, he could not satisfy the various agendas of all those different groups particularly the Weavers and the Fullers. After the uprising by the Weavers against him, he had sided with the Fullers, but weirdly, he then chose to side with the Weavers when the Fullers began demanding more money from them. He basically made everybody unhappy, and his support began to crumble. On the 2nd of May, 1345, the Guild militias of the Weavers and the Fullers in Ghent fought against each other in a full-on, pardon the pun, battle that wove its way, sorry, couldn't help myself, on the Friday Market Square in Ghent, the same place 
that the English king had been proclaimed the French king five years previously. The weavers won the battle, and Van Artefelder's main detractors were now in power in the city. Soon, not even his brutal retinue of paid killers would be able to protect him within the city walls. In July 1345, his old mate King Eddie of England returned to Slaes, even though he had little to no power left in Ghent, where he was officially appointed, Van Artefelder still went to go and negotiate with the king again, probably sent because of his close personal relationship with him. The discussions this time raised the issue of making Edward's son and heir the new Count of Flanders. This was another Edward who would, through much later literature, become known to history as the Black Prince. The prospect of completely changing the Count was a tough thing for Artefelder to sell to the Flemish. Being a city-dwelling businessman, he had always had more luck bringing the urban ruling parties over to his side. The countryside factions, however, this kind of newish body of influence besides the towns, were even more conservative and largely still very loyal to the rule of the absent Count Louis. They, in particular, but also people in all parties, were extremely upset about this apparent plan to bequeath the Count's title to the Black Prince. Remembering that Van Artefelder ruled by abject fear, in the meetings held between himself, the King of England, and representatives of the four members, the representatives could not disagree with the plan to his face. They might be stabbed in it. Instead, they insisted that they had to get the consent of those that they were representing, people back in the towns. The assembly at Slice dispersed and left Van Artefelder and King Edward III twiddling their thumbs, talking about how much they liked each other and waiting to see what would come of it. What Van Artefelder didn't know was that when the representatives of Ghent returned to town, his town, They called an assembly of citizens in the town square and informed them of the proposal to hand Flanders over to the English crown. The mob was none too pleased with Van Artefelder anyway, especially since the victory and rule of the weavers. Now, they began feeling positively murderous. When he arrived back in Ghent, Van Artefelder entered the town and instantly would have felt that the vibe was not very welcoming. People knew that he was coming, and according to Foissart, quote, When they saw him, they began to murmur, and began to run together, and said, Behold yonder great master, who will order all Flanders after his pleasure, the which is not to be suffered. Also there were words sown throughout all the town, how Jakob van Artefelder had nine years, assembled all the revenues of Flanders without any count given, and thereby hath kept his estate, and also sent great riches out of the country into England secretly. These words set them of Ghent on fire, and as he rode through the street, he perceived that there was some new matter against him, for he saw such as were wont to make reverence to him as he came by. He saw them turn their backs towards him, and enter into their houses. End quote. These were very ominous signs for Van Artefelder indeed. Foissart tells us further that he got home and had his gates and doors locked fast, 
Outside his walls, however, he would have heard the growing rumble as the people of Ghent began to assemble outside. They assailed his house with projectiles and insults. He tried a humble approach, leaning out a window at the top of his lodgings and endearing them to tell him why they had such issue with him. Quote, Good people, what aileth you? Why be you so sore troubled against me? In what manner have I displeased you? Show me, and I shall make you amends at your pleasures. To this, they responded, We will have account made of the great treasure of Flanders that ye have sent out of the way without any title of reason. End quote. His control over the finances of Flanders had been governed by none but himself, and the people now wished a full audit of them. Van Artefelder promised them that if they would just go home and come back in the morning, he would provide them a full account of everything, and that they would be fully satisfied by it. The angry people of Ghent, however, were not going to buy it. They responded to this suggestion with a heartfelt and general, quote, Nay, we will have account made incontinent, ye shall not scape us so. We know for truth that ye have sent great riches into England without our knowledge, wherefore ye shall die. End quote. Despite Van Artefelder's plea for mercy, and once he had withdrawn his head from the window, and, it is assumed, frantically sought a way to escape, a reported 400 men broke into his house, caught him, and slaughtered him. Foissart ends the account of his life with, quote, Poor men first mounteth up, and unhappy men slayeth them at the end. End quote. And so perished the man who epitomized the great changes that have been taking place in Flanders and the Low Countries over the previous few centuries. A nobody from Ghent, a commoner, but for the fortune he had amassed in the boom of the wool trade and finances, he had risen through the ranks of the contorted systems of Flemish power by means of his political savvy, violence and fear. He had hung out with a king and treated with him as an equal. He had even helped to have that king crowned as king of another country. Van Artefelder's rules showed that now there was another pathway by which rebellion could lead to governance. However, his death showed the government by a single commoner was just as vulnerable to rebellious intent as government by any count, duke or king could be, if not more. A statue of Van Artefelder still stands today in the Friday Market Square in Ghent, erected in the late 19th century by Flemish nationalists who had been looking through their history books and trying to find national heroes. This, in and of itself, tells us a lot about how valued the spirit of rebellion and independence would remain from this point on in the history of the Lowlands. Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio.
If you wished that we could spend less time doing our day jobs and spend more time making this show, then you can support us by giving us some cold hard cash. We have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash history of the Netherlands. There you can pay a buck a show and you'll get an ad-free version of it, uploaded before it's available on the regular feed. We would like to thank Robert Ritchie, or as we like to call him, Glitzy Ritchie, and Mark van der Laan, the man from the lane who doesn't complain. You two are excellent, and everybody in the world should aspire to be like you. Thank you, Mark and Robert, as well as our other Patreon subscribers. Enjoy your absence of ads. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.